Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. And uh, today's guest, Tim Shigel, is a fascinating human being. I will tell you that I've gotten to be friends with Tim. We knew each other from a former life and didn't realize we knew each other, but we've gotten to be even closer friends over the last year. And, and he's fascinating on multiple from multiple streams of his life and his life journey. And I can't wait for you to hear about, about his story. Tim actually most recently founded... Refinery Ventures. It's a VC firm that invests in early scale hyper growth companies. Now we'll get into that in a little bit. But he really wanted to had a passion for bridging the gap and mentoring teams from that post-seed Series A funding. And right now you're probably going, okay, I don't know what that means. We'll get to that. Uh, prior to Refinery, he created something you might be familiar with. It's a technology called Share This. And so you know that little logo that you got when you click on it to share something? This guy created that. And in fact, he was actually one of the fastest growing companies uh, that nearly a billion people use it now to share online. It was based in Palo Alto. He grew it to $50 million in less than four years. The guy's a genius when it comes to this kind of stuff. And um, he also launched and managed Centrifuge, which if you're in the Cincinnati area, you know, probably have heard of that. It was one of the best performing fund of funds in the country. Again, what's that mean? We'll get to that. And uh, Tim is just a guy that I really, really respect his knowledge and his heart for what he's doing. So, Tim, welcome to the Driving Change Podcast. Thanks for having me. That's a heck of an intro. I hope I uh, don't disappoint. <laughs> and uh, you won't. I, I know you won't. So, here's the way that we always start, you know, with all of our guests, is we really kind of want to know your backstory. What's your origin story? So, take us all the way back and just get, give us that now, we don't need 30 minutes of this, but give us your origin story back from the beginning and what that life was like in your early formative years that led you to be this amazing VC guru that you are today. Well, I can't imagine. I, I couldn't have imagined that I'd be doing what I do today back then, um, even not too long ago. But So I grew up in Cleveland. Uh, I'm the oldest of four. My mother was the youngest of nine. Uh, uh, heritage of the family was Serbian. Um, my father worked in a steel mill, was a Vietnam vet. Uh, so I had 36 cousins on my mom's side and most did not go to college. Uh, most worked for, you know, various members of the family. And, um, I ended up going to Case Western Reserve University and studied electroengineering, which was interesting. Um, because I, I basically, I, I was kind of a techie and I'm also a musician, play guitar and, uh, th those things tend to tend to go together, and um, I knew that the world was going to be more technology oriented. So I thought I'm going to get an engineering degree. I have no idea what I'm going to do when I get out, uh, but I'm going to learn something, right? And uh, I share that with any kid that'll listen today. Just you know, you, you have no idea what you're going to do. Just get get a solid degree and learn something. Right. So that's what I did. And it turns out I was talking to my advisor in engineering school, and I told him that I played music. And I said, you know, computers and music are starting to really come together. You know, this digital music recording and whatever. And he goes, funny, you should say that. There's a professor at the Cleveland Institute of Music who wants to start up a program between the engineering school and the music school. I was like, great. So I became one of the first five students in that curriculum and learned wow. in the early days of how to uh, do digital music recording. And for my senior project, I built 
the hardware and software, I built a digital signal processor to kind of do intelligent harmonies. And um, that- If you hear me saying, my, my harmonies are not intelligent, <laughs> by the way. So this is the opposite. So carry on. So they're creative. <laughs> um, so, and that was, when I did that project, my senior advisor was really where I kind of, all the schooling started to make sense, right? Where I started to apply it. And, um, uh, but my grades weren't necessarily great. I was, you know, I, I was a well-rounded student, let's put it that way, involved in many activities. And, uh, you know, doing the typical interviewing for jobs. And I get this request for an interview from a small company in Cincinnati. And small, I mean, nine people. And this guy, Mark, interviewed me. And Mark went to Stanford. And Stanford was one of the schools I would wish I could have went to. And he was interested in my resume because of the music and because of the fact that I was using Apple Macintoshes at the time, which a lot of people weren't using, but in the studios we were. So he was really interested. So I went down and visited with him. And I remember uh, going down for my interview and I'm all dressed up and he's in like shorts and flip-flops. Yeah, you know, really bringing back California to Cincinnati. Stanford, right, yeah. exactly. And um, so he and his brother were both at that company, both musicians, I joined like 10th employee. Procter & Gamble was our biggest customer. And we were doing a lot of custom software development on, on the Apple Macintosh platform. So a lot of Mark's friends from Stanford ended up you know, at, at Apple. And that started my connection to Silicon Valley. So I started up an office for us out there. And, and uh, um, I've kept a connection there. I've, I've lived there, um, kind of had a house there anyway. I didn't live there permanently. Uh, uh, had an office there off and on over the last 30 years. And it turns out a few months into the job, Mark and Rick would tell me interesting stories and uh, their name was Mark and Rick Armstrong. Turns out they were Neil's sons, Neil Armstrong's sons. Okay. Yeah, that was an extra fairly, fairly high, yeah. <laughs> fairly high bar. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, I think it was a Silicon, it was a Silicon Valley connection that exposed me to this world of venture capital that I hope to break into someday. And that someday happened a lot sooner than I thought, which was 1998. Wow. So you're one of those guys that figured out early on that you had an aptitude for your engineering, you had an engineering bent, but you also loved music. So you were already one of those unique unicorns that were using more of your whole brain than the average bear, who's either super analytical or super creative. And a lot of us kind of lean one way or the other. You'd figured out that you were a little bit of both or a lot of both. And then you got lucky or through divine intervention, was able to find a, a job really early to start to foster that. Um, at what point did you feel like you were in a, on a path? So you got exposed to Silicon Valley. And did you ever feel like you were out over your skis? At some point, did you, did you ever feel like, boy, I am not even the smartest guy in the room. I'm not even the closest to the smartest guy in the room. Did you ever feel that way at any point? Often. And if I'm not feeling it often enough, then I'm not trying hard enough. So uh, I think that's a good feeling. You know, it means you're always learning. So uh, I, for better or for worse, I don't believe in comfortable. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I grew up, you know, in a, in a hot, we didn't have a, you know, a lot of money. And uh, I had to loan my parents money oftentimes, you know, in high school and whatnot. Mm. So um, the uh, the idea of kind of being vulnerable and putting yourself out there and taking risks was, I'm like, this. I'm getting paid for this. This is awesome. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I don't want to lose that, you know, feeling regardless of what age I am. 
Yeah, so so true. And I was given advice once by a mentor. Who said, if you ever feel like you're the smartest guy in the room, one of two problems has presented themselves. One, you're too arrogant. Two, you're probably in the wrong room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I took both of those to heart saying, well, you know, vulnerability, humility is such a powerful force. And number two, I, I think what he was really getting at was if you are the smartest guy in the room, then what are you doing? You're not stretching yourself. You're not challenging yourself. What are you learning? And try to always try to position yourself to be around people that have gone places you haven't gone and can teach you things that you probably didn't even know you needed to learn. Sounds like you got thrust into that pretty quickly. Yeah, like I said, I, I kind of like to stay in that mode, um, probably because in, they, they didn't do this when I was a kid, but I, yeah, I probably would have been uh, diagnosed as having ADD, uh, I'm sure. Uh, so I like the variety. So if I, whether I'm talking to a, a Nobel Prize winning scientist or talking to a CFO of a public company, both are equally fascinating, right? I think, you know, uh, all aspects of uh, their careers and what they do and their skills are, I think, are just very interesting. And I think for, you know, for venture capital and also for, you know, for entrepreneurs, just having a good sense of curiosity, a strong sense of curiosity is very important. That's exactly the word I was going to just say is that I feel like that the smartest, the most accomplished people that I know, they just have this spirit of curiosity. And, and even if they're just talking to the barista at the coffee shop, they just have a, a natural bent, whether they've trained it or whether it's just kind of intuitive they're curious. They're just curious how things work, and including people. And so they like to ask a lot of exactly. questions and learn a lot as they as they go. So you've worked a lot with, um, especially recently, we'll get into this in a little bit, but over the course of your career, you, you worked with entrepreneurs right away. Your first job, obviously, these guys were entrepreneurs. Yeah, their dad was an astronaut, but that's here nor there. That They were, they were bent to be risk takers genetically, apparently. Um, what have you learned about the spirit of an entrepreneur that might be different than the average person who graduates and goes and gets a normal, quote, normal job, is there is there some DNA difference or is it simply the ability to recognize that things aren't as, you aren't as safe as you think you are in a real job, quote unquote, and, and people that push through that become the greatest entrepreneurs are the ones who recognize that and create their own security through their own intellectual horsepower. Have you seen, is there a DNA piece to an entrepreneur that makes them different or they just were able to push through the fear of failure? I, I think it's, uh, maybe this may be a cop-out answer. I think it's, it seems to be a little bit of both. You can find both. Like um, if you look at the uh, growth mindset, um, uh, who was that author? It wasn't Carol Dweck. Yeah, Carol Dweck, right, right. The, the growth mindset versus fixed mindset. It, you know, it's a muscle that you have to use. And I think, you know, your parents, your upbringing has a strong role in, helping you build tolerance or not tolerance, um, um, that competence and aptitude for the risk-taking and confidence, you know, over time as, as well as the curiosity. Right. Um, so I, I think, you know, the, you know, nature versus nurture, you know, it, it's definitely a little bit of both, but you, I, I think you can learn and entrepreneurs are always learning more about how to be an entrepreneur. The, um, obviously curiosity and empathy, are extremely important. But the one thing that I would say, if there was anything, that we, I, I, you know, I've worked with a lot of students and universities and entrepreneurship classes where they try to teach entrepreneurship. I'm, and I don't mean this that in a disparaging way, but I, I don't think much of those programs. Um, I wouldn't encourage my kids to go really? to one. And if anybody, if any kid asked me, I would not, I'd say, first of all, learn something, uh, particularly learn something on basic, basic sciences, hopefully. 
right? STEM fields. Um, and the reason is because the number one job as an entrepreneur, and uh, especially leading a growing company, if, if that's what's happening, is it's about managing people. It's recruiting and managing people. And if you want to learn entrepreneurship, go lead a team, lead your Boy Scout troop, lead your fraternity, lead, you know, your sports team, whatever it is, learn how to manage and coach and inspire and correct people. Mm. Right. Um, That's the absolute number one skill. That's as an entrepreneur, that's what you spend most of your time doing because if you're successful, it's not because of you, it's because you've surrounded yourself with a lot of other people who could do what you could never do on your own. Right. Yeah. So true. You're just giving, helpfully giving them a spark. So I think that's the, that's kind of the biggest thing when you ask that question that comes to mind for me. Yeah. Cause there's probably a, a trail of, I won't, I won't say failed entrepreneurs, but a long, a long line of entrepreneurs who were great idea people, um, but they didn't know how to lead other people. So therefore either their idea got bought, stolen, or they just fizzled out and went and got a job because they didn't know how to build a team to launch their brilliant idea. And you've probably seen a fair amount of that even in the work that you do. Yeah, well, as soon as you get into venture capital, you know, all your friends or your family and you go to events, or, hey, I got this great idea. I want to talk to you about this idea, right? And if you, after being in venture capital and seeing, you know, hundreds of business plans a month, you know, and seeing things work and not work, it's not about the idea. It's almost never about the idea, right? As a matter of fact, um, you know, we always look at the market first, Right some of the best ideas, I mean, the market's known. You see it coming 100 miles away. There's rarely an idea that I've ever heard that's unique. If it was that unique, it kind of scares me because then you got to educate the market, right? Um, it's it's much more about executing against it, right? Um, so it's funny how this notion that the idea is what defines an entrepreneur, or, hey, I have ideas, that really is a very, very small part of it. I'm going to pause there for a second because I think that was definitely a truth bomb that somebody needed to hear out there is that uh-huh. it's not really about the idea because I do agree. I think there's so many misconceptions about that. Well, so-and-so is so innovative and they're so genius. And you know, Ecclesiastes tells us, right, there's nothing new under the sun. And here's an expert like yourself who's seen thousands upon thousands of pitches over the last 20 years and nothing surprises you from an idea standpoint. So you're saying what you look for intuitively is, does this person have the chops to get it to market? Do they have a business plan around a team and can they execute to make this a scalable business? Assuming that everybody's got great ideas. You're saying the idea is just, that's table stakes. Mm-hmm. And then from yeah. there, so it's about what, team. what are we doing right now? We're on Zoom conferencing, right? It's not a new idea. Microsoft Teams, Cisco, WebEx, it was execution and they learned how to reduce more friction, more efficient to create a better user experience. And they were able to drive massive adoption because, you know, online and digital distribution is basically free, right? Right. It it, it doesn't cost you too much if you can, you know, figure out how to do it. I can click, click a button. Next thing you know, I'm on a Zoom call. So they, you know, were very disruptive, but not with some big idea. Right. right. So, right. so typically what you're looking for is an entrepreneur who really understands the market, so which gets back to curiosity and empathy. They understand the decisions and the problems facing uh, customers, right? People. And as Mark Andreessen says, famous venture capitalist and founder of Netscape, um, he looks for entrepreneurs that can walk you through the idea maze of the market. Mm, that's good. Like, here is why the incumbents cannot compete. 
here's why the others have failed. And I'll navigate you through what's happening in the market to see that the market's about to open up or it's about to shift or change in some way. So the analogy, you know, a lot of times what you'll hear, and I heard for years, when people talk about business, you know, betting on businesses, you bet on the business, is it the horse or the jockey, right? You've probably heard that yeah. metaphor. Well, I don't think that metaphor works very well. Uh, the metaphor that I like is the surfer and the wave, right? So you can have the best surfer in the world and they've got the best, most aerodynamic, coolest surfboard ever. And if they go out and stand on it in the water and there's no wave coming, what's going to happen? Yeah. Nothing. Jack. <laughs> um, it's called a paddleboard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a paddleboard at that point. Um, a good surfer knows to look for the wave and the wave is the market. You know, they see the market coming. They see that change in attitude. They see the problems that people are facing and willing to spend a lot of money to solve. And they figured out how to solve it for them without spending as much money. Um, that's what you're looking for. That's good. That's really good. Too many entrepreneurs that I've seen that have failed have had great boards. They have great backgrounds, but it's like they're standing on a paddleboard. You're right. And there's no wave. Right. And they wonder why it's not working. Mm. And they got to create their own energy and their own momentum. And eventually that peters yeah, out fast. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the kiss of death is when they say, oh, we have to educate the market. Oh, my gosh. So for all you people getting ready to do your pitches out there, don't you never use that phrase, even if you think it's true. <laughs> so tell me, uh, Tim, a little bit about, because I know the name Refinery Ventures, um, it's, it's my guess is, it's not my guess, I know the truth, but I want to hear you tell the story. It's not about turning entrepreneurs into gold. Um, what, what, where'd the name come from and what does it mean to you personally? Because we touched on the people a minute ago, and I know this is kind of all interwoven into your vision now for Refinery. Yeah, it's a, a, a little bit of a longer story. but So I mentioned I got into venture capital in 1998. So I was with a venture firm for almost 10 years. I, I went through the boom and the bust, you know, the dot-com, the dot-bomb. So learned a lot, then started Share This at the end of 2007. Uh, and uh, I didn't want to move the family to the West Coast. So I gave up the role of CEO, let somebody else be CEO, and I became chairman. And shortly after that, um, uh, so through some of my investors who were involved in politics, which I was not at all, I was asked to work on the presidential election in 2012. I knew nothing. I was flown to DC. Oh my gosh, you have to do this. I wasn't sure. It was a, one of those moments where I didn't, I felt vulnerable. I didn't know that I could solve any of their problems, right? But apparently I was their best candidate. Um, so I went back and I asked my kids, I'm like, should I do this? Because I was trying to cut down on travel. And my kids were like, yeah, you should do this. You're going to learn like, you know, all sorts, that'll be super interesting. And so sure enough, me and a, an ambassador shared a, an apartment in Capitol Hill and Every week I was going to DC working on the presidential election and I learned a lot and I learned that I didn't get the bug. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I did not feel drawn to that scene, but I saw how things worked. And um, so anyway, fast forward a couple more years and I was actually, um, I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. I was working with Centrifuge, helping entrepreneurs, but I knew that was just kind of a short-term thing. And we were on a trip with a church group with uh, folks from um, Cincinnati to uh, Israel. And I happened to go to Israel three times in a period of about 18 months, two for business and one on this trip with about 50 some people. And I'm trying to figure out kind of what do I do next? And people would often ask, do you want to be an entrepreneur or do you want to be a venture capitalist? 
And I felt bad because I didn't know. But then I decided not to feel bad and that it's okay sometimes in life and in your career to kind of be in a discovery mode. Right. Right. I'm going to wait till something becomes obvious and apparent. And so uh, we had this trip. I was still wrestling with this question. And on the way back, I happen to have on my Kindle the book Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. Really good book. Really good book. Life-changing book. And I decided I was going to read a piece of that book every single morning, get up, yeah, read it, pray about it, listen, and listen. Back to curiosity. I was curious. What is God? <laughs> What's God doing? You know? And, um, and I would talk to people throughout the day. I keep notes every day from it. And it was amazing. Some of the people, things people said, a lot of happy accidents or, um, there's my, my mother-in-law used to say, there are no coincidences in God's economy. Um, and one of the big things I learned from that book is it's not about what's God's plan for your life. It's, it's about listening and being attuned to what is God's plan. What's God's will. What's your role role in in it? it. Yeah. 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 I was like, just mind blown. That was just such an inversion. Like, wow. Um, and what I realized was I was, uh, you know, a founder and CEO of a company that was moderately successful. Like you mentioned, you know, it's one of the fastest growing in the country, uh, but it's still a small company, right? It wasn't a public company. It wasn't Walmart. It wasn't, you know, uh, anything like that. And next thing you know, I'm being asked to work on the election for the president of the United States. Right? A small player, but still, Right. And what, what I realized is entrepreneurs, I don't think, are very prepared. You know, they start off a company because they have an idea, <laughs> right? Or they're trying to solve a problem. And if they have some level of success and they have a lot of employees, it turns out they have a lot of influence on their employees and their employees' families and on places where they work and their customers and their communities, maybe their country or the whole world. And how many entrepreneurs are prepared for that? Very few. Like zero. Yeah, very few. Right. And given share this, I was involved very early in social media, right? Before it was a term. Before it was fully and social? Was right, I mean, Zuckerberg and I used to eat at the same restaurant, you know, most nights out in Palo Alto. And um, I saw how that data, social data was being used. And the next thing you know, you go to kind of recent events and we're expecting our tech leaders to be like our moral uh, arbiters of what's good and bad or good, you know, right and wrong. Who elected them for that? Right. And, and you know, wouldn't it be, uh, wouldn't it be great if we could have uh, leaders, uh, you know, innovative tech leaders who also had strong character, right. And, you know, leaders, leaders have to overcome adversity, right. And exceptional leaders thrive in it. Right. right? So I don't usually feel too much sympathy for entrepreneurs because you like, you, you got on this ride. You should know what this ride entails, right? Yep. If you're not prepared for it, your family's not prepared for it, then get off the ride, right? Um, and, uh, but how many, how many people are really prepared for that? And, and, and can't you make a big difference to our world and our, our families and our communities if you had strong leaders who are strong not only in a business sense, but strong from a leadership and a values and a virtue sense? And that is when it struck me, you know, going through that book and how as leaders, we are refined, right? And we're refined by overcoming that adversary, adversity and stripping out all of the garbage to those core principles that you, you have to have and have to be able to, to articulate 
to your employees and your customers if you want a company that's successful and grows. So that was the start of refining. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if, and, and I, not, not just wouldn't it be great, but I, I, I felt like, you know, God is working in, you know, our world and amongst these tech leaders and innovation leaders and who is speaking to them, who is giving their testimony, who is sharing, you know, the gospel, who is building into these people. And uh, so I created Refinery. I had to choose, you know, am I investing in just Christians or not Christians? And I did not, this is not an exclusive Christian club. I have no idea who God's going to put in front of me at any moment. Right. And the fact that some of them aren't Christian is, is quite frankly, more exciting. Right. So I have, I've had a number of opportunities where people, CEOs, uh, without any initiative on my part whatsoever. I don't, I don't preach to them. I don't say, you know, say much until I'm invited. And I've been amazed how many times very interesting, deep questions have been put to me with these folks. And when that happens, I just go, okay, I'm in the right place. Well, if you were only around when some of our current tech monopolies giants had been founded to have them inside this program, we might not have some of the issues we're having right now. <laughs> That's here nor there. We won't go down a we won't go down a political conversation. You, yeah. you said something I want to come back to because I think you know there's a lot of people out there today that regardless of where you are in your faith, um, it struck me as I, one of the most frequent questions that I hear or even get asked is, "Boy, if I just knew." what God's purpose was for my life. It'd make things so much easier. And, and, and we probably all have asked some form of that question, myself included. And I think what you're saying is the epiphany that you discovered and now are helping other people discover. I myself have found myself in the same <laughs> discovery process is when you switch the question, it's not what's God's purpose for my life. It's what's my purpose in his creation, in his plan. And, and that's such a, Hard question to ask because suddenly you can't be the center of attention. You have to have humility and vulnerability. But when you when you reach that point, suddenly you start to find yourself finding that fulfillment and that peace and then that purpose, ironically. It's a great irony in the whole thing, right? There is. Well, one of my friends, good friends, when I told him about a section of the book I read, he cautioned me, don't plan so much. Like, don't, don't think you've got it all figured out. And so I never had like a life verse or anything like that. You know, I, I wasn't, and I'm definitely continuing to grow, you know, in, in, in my faith. Um, uh, but um, so the, the verse that stood, stood out to me that I keep on my dresser is Proverbs 16, three, which is commit to the Lord and everything you do. And he will establish your plans. He will establish your plans. So, you know, the fact that I'm taking a breath right now is only because it's God's will that I have a breath. Right. Right. Um, same with my job in my career, my platform. So I feel like God has planted me here, you know, in, in this garden. It's, it's something that he's prepared me for. And that's another part of that book, by the way. Right. All of, all of the, the, the main, you know, characters of the Bible, they weren't prepared for the mission that God set them on. Right he gave them the skills, the ability to talk, the ability to, you know, to work miracles, what have you. It wasn't based on their, their gifts, you know, their, their, their skills that, cause, cause then you'd be prideful of it. Right. And you'd, you'd boast about it. Oh, look what I can do. Look what I can do. Instead of being weak and dependent, you need to be weak and dependent. Right. And say, this isn't, this isn't me. So, um, 
you know, for me, refineries, you know, God willing, that's, you know, kind of what I'm just going to do the rest of my life and career until he tells me I have to do something else and, and make the best of every day and every conversation I have with the entrepreneurs and the people I work with. Um, because you know, it, my, uh, God's given me this platform, right? And so I have to use it. Yeah, I love the, uh, I mean, the, the idea behind refinery is it's not, you're refined. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a process of being refined um, over and over and over again and being humble enough to recognize that you're in the process of being refined. And I think I've even said this on a previous podcast a while back, but I love the fact that it's, I call it the Samuel effect. And for those of you who are Old Testament scholars, when when God tells him to go anoint the next king of Israel, he just sends him to the house of Jesse. He doesn't even know where he's going. He just sends him in that direction. He gets to the house and, and God literally makes him go through every one of the brothers that look like they're supposed to be kings. And then as he's done through all of them, then he says, hey, ask him if there's one more. And Samuel's like, oh, are you serious? And oh yeah, there's a ruddy-headed kid out in the field. Go, do you have one more son? And I thought, you know, God dropped this truth in my heart. You know, basically when I started Brain Trust 11 years ago, if I'm not going to tell Samuel step-by-step instructions because he would have screwed it up, why on earth would I give you? <laughs> Just yeah. take a step and then let me show you the next. Take a step. I'll give you the plan, but you got to keep stretching yourself and taking that step, and then he'll keep revealing to you what's the next step. And I think because that requires humility and requires vulnerability, um, it's tough for people because we're all control freaks and we want to kind of feel like we're in control of the plan, right? Yeah, yeah. it's something you need to remind yourself of every day. And because of that, at all, uh, you know, starting Refinery also put me you know, on my own journey in terms of, um, you know, making sure that I had time every morning and doing a better and better job. I mean, the only way to do this is, is to be in prayer and to be in God's will. And the way to do that, I mean, it's time. I mean, you think about it. If, you know, when you understand that he's the, he's your creator, he created everything and he created you. He's, he's by far the most important relationship you have in your life for eternity, more important than anything. And if you, anybody else you think about having a relationship with it, that's that important. How much time should you spend with that person? Probably a little bit. <laughs> Not just a once a week check-in at church. <laughs> right. or, yeah, right? I got my 30-minute Zoom call with God this week. See how he's doing. <laughs> I'll squeeze you in. You know, I, it's like, you know, we do this with other relationships and we, well, you know, if you want to, and and I think, you know, God wants us to have a relationship with him, right? And so, you know, the for me, the metaphors to your own family and your kids is just, almost never fails, right. right? It's the same thing with your kids. Like you want to spend time with them when they're young and you forgive them when they screw up and, you know, you're going to be there. But the moment they need you, you're there like that. And you just hope when they, you know, when they get done with school, if they want to come home and visit and not just hang out with their friends, you want to see them every once in a while. Yeah. And even when they think they know it all, they still come to you for advice. Isn't that funny how we, we feel the same way? Like with, with our, he, he, we yeah. think we know it yeah. all, so we don't need to go to God for advice. So, cause we have the answers. Um, yeah. So this, yeah. And it's amazing how many times you get, you know, situations where you get totally surprised. You go, oh my gosh, I would not have, how could I have guessed that? How could I have known what God had in store for me this afternoon? Yeah. You know, I had no idea. How do you address, I want to take a hard pivot here. Still, still related. Um, cause you're helping leaders become better leaders and you're helping them be continually refined and how they run their companies, how they treat their, their employees, their families. How, how do you handle when you have um, a leader in a, in a company that's in a fund that you are responsible for, 
who may be on the verge of making a choice that might be not in alignment with the kingdom values that you espouse. It has well, number one, has that ever happened where there's been this kind of tension between, ooh, I don't know that that's the right thing to do, and and you having to either step in or or figure out how to navigate that. Yeah, no, that happened not too long ago where I got an email. I wasn't the only one to get the email, the investors or the board requesting some help with something, with something that I did not agree with and clearly believe was was wrong. Um, and it wasn't illegal or anything, but it right. was just, you know, promoting the wrong sort of ideas. And I talked about my, my wife. I was like, what, what do I do? How do I handle this? And not to throw her under the bus because everybody does this. It was kind of like, I would just ignore it. Just don't, <laughs> you know, which is the typical mode, right? right. I don't want to put up a fuss. Don't rock the boat. I'm, don't rock the boat. I'm just going to ignore it. I'm like, you know what? I can't do that. That's not why I'm here. Yeah. Like, that's not why I'm here with refinery. This, this is a platform for me to at least, at least share a different point of view. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm not going to, I can't make the person do something. I'm not going to sound like that. I'm not going to judge the person. You know, I'm not going to say, hey, you're a bad person if you do this. I'm just going to say, look, I can't participate in that. And here's why. And I'd love to talk to you about it if you want to, you know, go deeper on it. But, I, you know, I'm, there's a limit. Right. So that's that the truth and love, but still with some level of accountability to outcomes, right? It is scary. I mean, and I'm, I'm not sure. I, yeah, I don't know if I handled it well, you know, and... uh um, but I think that's what you're supposed to do. Right. And, um, the, you just mentioned the, the grace, you know, I, I reminded my kids, you know, I don't remember which verse it is when, when it talks about being full of grace and seasoned with salt. And I think people forget this, especially, uh, people who, you know, might get a little prideful as Christians, right. We're full of grace. Those people are sinners just like we are. Right. Um, and seasoned with salt. So you don't hit them over the head with a block of salt <laughs> saying this is right and wrong. Right. It's seasoned with salt. Yeah. But even Jesus said, Hey, I, I, I didn't come to judge. I came to save you. Know, I can, I can share the gospel and people can re- choose to receive it or not. Right. Yeah. That's the, I'm not going to force it. That's the tension between free will and, and, and us wanting God to give us all the answers. It's uh, there's always a tension there. All right, let's do some rapid fire. Let's have some fun. Um, most famous person, at least in your mind, that you've spent more than five minutes with? Uh, I have a lot of fun ones, but this one I'll share. He's pretty famous, but I think hugely impactful. It's David Green, the founder of Hobby Lobby. Ah, okay. I've spent multiple days with different sessions uh, with a group a friend of mine's organized in his boardroom, hearing all of his stories and how he basically, he and his family have given away the company in essence. Yeah. Because he's a steward. You know, he's, he's, uh, he said, you know, this, this is given to me as a steward. I'm managing it as long as God wants me to manage it. And they give away a ton of money every year. I mean, they're just hugely successful. But to hear and hear his stories of how he made decisions in faith, you know, whether to not be open on Sundays or to close at, you know, 8 or 9 p.m. or to, you know, pay higher salaries or um, all these decisions that were all prayerfully thought through. And then um, uh, he's just, he's willing to lay it all on the line. You don't know too many billionaires that will lay it all on the line 
like he did. There's probably, I can't imagine there's any others. Um, and people don't, people may not know he, his family basically created the museum of the Bible in DC, which opened a couple of years oh, ago. That's a fantastic uh, place. Which is unbelievable. This guy sells trinkets right. and he, and he'll say that, right. He sells arts and crafts, Yeah, but because he was a good and faithful servant and steward, and he didn't pay for it all himself, but they, they, you know, they, they had a lot of help as well, but they, they were able to amass this huge asset and resource for people to learn about the most important book in history, right? Regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, you got to acknowledge right. this book had pretty big impact. Um, it's just unbelievable story. So he's, I'd put him up there. That's great. Okay. N- non-religious person in history that you'd like to go back and spend a lunch with. Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Why? Uh, I just think the guy was just super smart. <laughs> you know, he was, he, he was also, you know, faithful, but so talk about leaders overcoming adversity. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, he was just funny. Um, I think he's probably hilarious. If I spoke in his, you know, <laughs> vernacular at the time, right. uh, just hilarious. Matter of fact, so on my wife's side of her family, um, there were a couple doctors and one of them, so it was like, great, great grandfather was appointed by Lincoln to be what became the head of the, the, the veterans administration. There was no VA at the time. Right. Her family, uh, person was named by Lincoln. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. And, uh, and we have a letter from him and it's, it's just, it's funny. The guy was just kind of a crack up. I see, no, no, you don't see that side of him unless you're just looking at the guy from the Bill and Ted's greatest adventure version of Abraham Lincoln. Um, all right. So, Here's the last one then. You know, you've only got a couple of lines that you can put on the tombstone, but you know, how do you how do you really want to be remembered? Um I don't know. Simply. <laughs> uh maybe faithful is probably the best word. If I had come up with one word, uh, you know, that would be it. Um I do think about I do when I was creating refinery, I did have this vision of, you know, at my funeral some of you know the world's best entrepreneurs who I got to invest in coming to the funeral, right? If I had invested in Bezos and Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs equivalent in the future, right? Which maybe I maybe I am. I don't know. Right. That's right. It could be happening right now as far as I know. Uh that would be pretty cool. And they could shoot you in a space in a space capsule until you could be later uh, restored to full health with all the new technology. So um well, I think that, worried about that I know, right? <laughs> we, I think God's attorney is better than that. We, we Anything know, you can come up yeah, with. Yeah, we know what we're going <laughs> so, so tell, last thing then is t- tell folks how they can learn more about Refinery Ventures. And I know you guys are, you're always in a constant looking, because there might be somebody out there listening right now who loves this stuff and wants to be, you know, look at investing in some funds and learning more about getting involved in refinery, whether it's locally here in the greater Cincinnati area or nationally or globally. Where could they find more information? So refinery.com. Uh, is the website simple to find uh, our investment um, strategy is to invest in tech companies. Usually they're software, predominantly software. We invest at a specific stage, which is typically after the seed round. And it, so sometimes it's called series a, sometimes it's called post seed. Sometimes it's called seed plus, maybe it's called seed Supreme. I don't care. But the point is the company's approaching a million in revenue hopefully has had less than 3 million invested prior to our round so that they're, they're somewhat capital efficient. 
and they're poised for growing three to five X year over year. So we don't look at the absolute number. Like a lot of people say, oh, we wait until companies 1 million of ARR, annual recurring revenue. That's not fixed. Uh, I think a better way to think about it is we want a company that we believe is 24 months away from getting to about 10 million in annual recurring revenue. Okay. So it's more, the slope is more important than the, the dot. So that was good for both the entrepreneur out there who might be in that space with a great, mm-hmm. you know, great, great company, software, ideal tech, contact refinery, or the investor out there who just says, Hey, I just, I'm all about this. Not just because of the, the types of companies that refinery is investing in, but because of the, the, the mission that, that Tim is on to help make this a more than just results-oriented VC. This is a company. Yeah, if I can, I'll explain. When you go to the website, you'll see the astronaut. Uh, and that's not necessarily taken from the relationship I had with Neil Armstrong and his sons. Uh, that was a bonus. But the reason for that is because, uh, and the big kind of aha I had when creating Refinery is outside of Silicon Valley, most entrepreneurs have never been in a company that experienced hypergrowth, like zero to 10 million or 10 to 100 million. They just don't know what it looks like. They don't know what it feels like. It's like not ever knowing what it feels like to experience, you know, gravity, zero or negative Gs or what have you. And um, when I did share this, uh, I was uh, earlier, I was an investor in a company called advertising.com and I got to see their growth from zero to 135 million. And I, that, that inspired me and gave me a model. Yeah. And I realized outside Silicon Valley, very few entrepreneurs have that model. And so what we're looking for is entrepreneurs who are tech pioneers. And the problem is most tech pioneers think oh, I got to go to Silicon Valley, right? Well, I'd remind them that the ultimate pioneers were the astronauts and they were from places like Cincinnati. Right, right. That's right. beautiful. So, okay, so that's the metaphor behind the... Those are the folks we're looking for that, that want to suit up for that hypergrowth experience. That's awesome. Love it. Well, Tim, thanks for being on today. I know I, I took a lot away. I always take a lot away from when I, when I spend time with you personally. Um, I think I learned a lot. I think the audience learned a lot. And um, I just really appreciate you for who you are and what you're doing, what you're putting out there in the world to help make the world a better place through the lane that God's given you right now. So thank you. And, and for those listening, go back to check them out, refinery.com, send them an email, check in with these guys uh, on a regular basis, see what they're doing. So thanks again for being a part of the podcast. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.